Good afternoon. Thank you for joining us for the Evangel Life broadcast and discussion. We are going to be delving into a complex topic today, the long-standing conflict between the Jewish people and the Palestinian people in the region of Israel. We hope this is a blessing. If you'll join with us, maybe we'll learn something today. I think that we are, as, as believers, we're all troubled, asking questions. What does this mean for uh, in terms of fulfilling prophecy? Why did this come on the last and greatest day of the Feast of Sukkot? What, what does this portend? What does this suggest about the times that we're living in? And if nothing else, it, it certainly has led many of us to prayer, both for the safety of our Jewish brothers and sisters in Israel, but also prayer for God's wisdom and clarity at this, at this time. And, and I've asked our good friend, Safir Yarden, to join us. And uh, maybe you could just talk a little bit about where you were born, your upbringing. You were, you're called a Sabra, correct? Right. And, and doesn't that literally mean prickly pear? Prickly pear. <laughs> okay, so, so I understand that if you're a Jewish uh, uh, individual who is born in Israel, you get this special name, the Sabra, which means you're a prickly pear. You're, you're a fruit that can survive in the desert but has a lot of thorns. Yeah, and ho <laughs> hopefully you're going to find some sweetener inside after you get through all the thorns. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your story um, and uh, growing up in Israel and, and your experience uh, of the community from that side. Um, my grandparents came to Israel from Europe in the late 1920s. Um, they settled in the Jordan Valley, the one of my parents' side, that was pretty desolated. Looking at, question, at pictures, there's hardly any, the big open desolate lane under many years of the Ottoman Empire, there was not much left of greenery or trees or anything. But they established a community called the Kibbutz, helped to a group to do that right on the, on the side of the Jordan River, uh, walking distance. My dad still remember swimming in it, going down there and actually swimming with the Arab kids of the neighboring village who was right next door. Mm. So your grandparents, your third generation, born in the land of Israel, because your grandparents came over in their 20s, correct? 20, 19 and 20 years old. 19 and 20 years old. And they hailed from Poland, is that right? Yes, sir. Yeah. Just before the, world, the Second World War. Correct. And they, they did not wait because uh, though they were religious uh, Jews, they had a always reading and feeling the, the longing to b go back to their country. And kind of in the early uh, part of the 20th century started the movement called the Zionist movement, mm. who came and called Jews out of Europe mm. to leave Europe now, not mm. wait. There was always this bad pogrom in this, but they say, you need to move. Mm. And my grandfather, 19 years old, my grandmother, 20, mm. went on a train against quite a resistance of their own family at the time mm. and went to the young pioneers to the mm. Holy Land and left all the diaspora habits and these behind mm. and started working the land. Amen. Became farmers. And as a, as a Christian community, Dan, we have a wonderful fellowship with a group of believers there in Israel who are in the uh, northern part of the country. But you were just telling me, Daniel, has, uh, you've, been, you've been in touch with some of them, and how are, how are they being impacted by this current crisis currently right now? Yeah, I've talked to a couple of them, and they, they say that everything is tense. Um, most Israelis are trying to carry on with business as much as possible. It's it's almost even a way of saying that we're not going to let this affect us, you know. But a lot of things are, are very much affected in terms of normal affairs. So many men have been called up to the service that, uh, you know, a lot of businesses are actually closed because they don't have workers. And then the women are home because all the schools are closed. For So, um, you know, in Israel, that's most of the men and the women work. So the, the culture is definitely... Um, off a rhythm. 
uh, right now. And this is in the north. Um, our folks we know are primarily in the northern part of the country that's least affected right yes. now by all that's going on. But uh, yeah, br Brother Daniel was telling me that his neighbor across the street, uh, their, their daughter is 25 years old and was down in the south when this attack happened. And they, uh, they heard from her. She was trying to flee, apparently, with a friend. And then they lost contact with her. Um, later on, her friend showed up in one of the um, terrorist videos as a hostage. And they still haven't heard from or seen anything else from their daughter. So the, the father actually drove down there and was down there for three days himself trying to find her and can't find her. So it's everybody has stories like that. It's, yeah. it's touching. Israel's a very small place where everybody knows everybody, so people feel these things extremely uh, personally. Um, we just yeah. really encourage people to pray for the best possible outcome. Really, it will be a miracle if many of those hostages are brought safely back to their families. Hamas does not reason or calculate in the manner that many Westerners would expect. Um, and, and this was a pretty brutal attack. I understand that around 1,300 Israelis were killed in the initial attack there from Hamas. Well, that's, yeah, that number is constantly growing. Yeah. Aren't there several hundred still accounted for? About 300 or more. Yeah. That they don't know where they are. Yeah. yeah. I think at least 27 Americans were also killed in that initial attack as well. And, and hundreds of wounded. I understand that Israel is doing a counteroffensive against Gaza, trying to uh, undermine the base where these attacks came from. And uh, while we mourn the loss of life and the chaos of war, wherever it happens, um, it's hard to not see the, the justification from a worldly standpoint of what else is Israel going to do besides... Uh, <clears throat> root out these these centers of, of terror that ha are causing this is perhaps the worst terrorist attack that we've seen since 9-11 in the world I mean this yes, is mm -hmm. this is going to change the landscape of of politics and safety going forward not just in Israel but I think across the board I believe it. so let's get into the let's get into the story and we'll pick back up on on your family's history because that'll give us a personal angle on it but it doesn't seem like we can understand the uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict if we don't zoom out a little bit. And obviously, I think that most people know that Israel has been the historic homeland of the Jewish people for thousands of years. Really, ever since Abraham followed God's voice out of Ur and started a family, started a community there. And... Um, and I think that there is abundant historical evidence to that. Um, historical records have, through the years, uh, substantiated the biblical narrative um, when they discovered the partial seal of King Hezekiah, or when they discovered, discovered the, the, the city of David there outside of Jerusalem, mm -hmm. uh, old city Jerusalem, and, uh, and they discovered the, the bowl full of of stamps, seals, yeah. <clears throat> and, and some of the names mentioned by Jeremiah. Um, and, I mean, just one thing after another. Uh, there's numerous, constant uh, archaeological evidence that substantiates what, as Christians, we hold to be true, which is the Word of God, the Bible, that tells the story of, the, of that area of the Middle East becoming a permanent abiding homeland for the people uh, for, for the Jewish people, the sons mm -hmm. of Abraham. And I guess beginning in, in uh, 70 AD, uh, 70 AD um, we see that Titus, when he sacks Jerusalem after the Jews revolted against the Romans, there is the beginning of a dispersion. There's a begin, beginning of, mm -hmm. of the final uh, exile from the land. And then again in uh, 135, uh, the bar, the bar Kokhba. How do you say that? Bar Kokhba. So tell us a little bit about that. What was happening at that time? That was sixty-five years later, in, and, in one thirty-five A.D. Yes, sir. And they, the zealous, led by uh, Rabbi Akiva, who declared this 
man, the, the head of the revolt uh, is a messiah. Uh, went, to another, went to another big revolt that completely devastated the remain of the 70 AD because there were still people living in the land and there were still, after they took Jerusalem, and that really devastated the country. So this revolt in 135, how do you say that? Bar Kokhba. Revolt um, resulted in another wave of expulsion from the land or Great. fleeing from the land? Taken yes. captive or yeah. killed. Amen. Yeah. And so that really ends the era where the Jews are associated with a region, but the the Jewish people remained in small numbers in the land of Israel throughout that whole time. Is this correct? Always. Some of interesting uh, thing, if you read, when the Zionist movement began with Theodore Herzl and others, and you're looking at Jerusalem in 1890, that's under the Ottoman Empire, they're the one ruling the land. Um, um, in, in 1890, there are 45,420 people living in Jerusalem. And the, what they were written that eight, eight to 8560 are Muslim, 80,000 80, are Muslims, 8,000 8, are Muslim, 8,700 are Christians, and 28,112 are Jews. Hmm. Under the Ottoman Empire, the Jews kept coming as much, though that state stay and they can keep going to Israel and living especially in four of the cities to maintain a Jewish presence, presence. there because they felt like that's where they belong. Mm. They would go pray in the Wailing Wall and they would keep the Jewish presence in the land. So mm. let's talk about Theodore Herzl and, and that first Zionist Congress and the, the pamphlet he, that, that he produced, Jews, Where Are You?, and and uh, then f going from there into the Balfour Declaration. Can we talk about that a little bit? Well, <clears throat> um, Theodor Herzl, interestingly enough, was an assimilated Jew. He had nothing he to do... He was an assimilated Jew. What they call an assimilated Jew. I mean, he, he was in Austria and Germany. So and an assimilated Jew is someone who <clears throat> is of Jewish descent, but indistinguishable from the European culture that he is situated in. Correct. Okay. And he wanted to be a, repo a, a poem writer and a reporter. And he was sent to cover uh, a trial in France of one of the two Jewish officers in the French army named Alfred Dreyfus. And he there, either secular, non-believer and thing, all, always hoped even growing up that the Jews can just assimilate and disappear as a distinct uh, entity into Europe. And you hear the mob uh, screaming, death to the Jews, death to the Jews, in the trial of this officer that happened to be a Jew. Hmm. So he's in France, and he's, he's covering as a journalist the trial of a French officer, and he sees the anti-Semitism, and his own Jewish roots are awakened. Correct, especially in the birth of, uh, of emancipation, yeah. France. Yeah. And they say he said, and within three, he was just being <clears throat> possessed with a, a realization that the Jews have no future in the diaspora. They have to have a place that's going to be a place for the Jews. And he wrote in three weeks a little booklet called The Jewish State. The Jewish State. That put the vision of a Jewish state. He was, it was utterly scorned in well, in, in Germany and in uh, Austria, and no publisher was willing to uh, print it even because there was so much want to be part of the, of the culture that somebody who say the Jews need a state, they were afraid it's going to rock the boat. Mm. However, when it was published in Eastern Europe for millions of Jews, they failed the message of, if it's happened, we have a hope. Mm. You know. And this is the the mid to late 1800s. Yeah, correct. Amen. And so then um, he organizes the Jewish Congress, correct? Yes, sir. And this was a Zionist movement that would just start the discussion about um, the hope of a Jewish homeland. Because 
while hostilities were not always on the surface, there was, there was anti-Semitism throughout all European countries, and the Jews felt that they had not achieved emancipation in Europe up to that point. Of course, all of this is leading up to the rise of, of Nazism in the, uh, in the 30s, the 1930s. But let's, let's talk about the Balfour Declaration in 1917. How does that factor in here? Uh, <clears throat> Theodor Herzl created the, did the first Jewish Congress. Uh, uh, he wanted to do it in Germany because he was a German. But nobody in Germany would allow him to do it. There was opposition of the Jews, the, the, the Jews in Germany, for this to happen. So he did it in, uh, in Basel. And he invited delegators from, from all over the Jewish, from all over the world. And it was the first time to establish a political voice to the Jews. Okay. We are somebody that, we, that you can negotiate with. Mm. But so far, the Jews were spread all over the world. Mm and had no voice as people. He said, I want to create an entity, the Jewish Congress, that the Jews are going to have a voice to negotiate. Mm. And uh, that was a, the beginning. And they start trying to find a way to find a piece of land beside other things in which the Jews can migrate mm. to. And they weren't just looking in the Middle East, were they? Well. He made a few trips to the Sultan in Kushta in Istanbul trying to buy Palestine, but the man was not interested. So he visited the Sultan uh, over the Ottoman Empire and right. sought to buy Palestine from the Sultan, but he wasn't willing to negotiate. No, sir. And then they start, uh, they look for anything. Okay. And uh, pogroms kept going on in, in, in different places in, in Europe. And one of the pogroms, define that for us. Pogroms will be, the picture will be similar to what some people have seen this week on uh, settlement that have been torn apart, burned down. So there killed. would be a pogrom refers to, it, we really see it in the Bible, when Haman gets the Persian people to attack the Jews. And so that there would be these seasons, sometimes government-sponsored or sometimes uh, arising from the population, of just going after the Jewish people, this, this un dislike of the unlike, this hatred, this racial animosity. And they were very common in, in, in Russia. Correct. But they, versions of them happened throughout Europe, and only in the, in the 30s did it become extreme on the level that on the on the scale that the world had never seen before, and one could look at Kristallnacht, the the night of of uh, the the Broken big Jews. turning point uh, in the persecution in the Nazi persecution of the Jews. That was a kind of pogrom, but yeah. but these things were happening constantly throughout Europe, and so the Jews felt underrepresented, misrepresented, uh, alienated from every host culture where they were living. And this Jewish Congress sought to establish a unified body of, of voices that would represent them as an aggregate, represent them as a people, and not just isolated pockets in other nations. Correct. So the Balfour Declaration seems to be a turning point, and uh, that's corresponding to World War One and the change with the Ottoman Empire. How does that... And I'll just take one step back. As he's doing the... Uh, Zionist uh, movement, the political movement to try to negotiate. Theodore Herzl. Theodor Herzl. Other people, as the results of pogroms and persecution, are not waiting for getting a charter. They start migrating to Israel in 1882. The first, it's, that is still more than uh, 15 years before the first. Uh, uh, he's with 1897, 1882. So there were always Jews living in Israel from Abraham until now. Mm -hmm. That never broke. In fact, in Jerusalem, before the Aliyahs began, the Jews were a majority in the city. Yes, sir. But you're saying that in 1882, that begins the first mass exodus where large numbers together started flocking to what was then Palestine. Exactly. And this is called Aliyah. The first Aliyah. Aliyah, Aliyah. they're going up. That was the first one after a pogroms in 
in Russia, every Aliyah was st started after a pogrom. Okay. Then people didn't leave when it was easy and good. We're not saying program, we're saying pogrom. Pogroms, yes. yeah. <laughs> that after, <clears throat> after heavy persecution that are in 1881, persecution in Russia, 1882, 25,000 people from Romania, from Russia, are making the way to Israel, to Palestine, and start settling the land for the first time. They're going out of just living in cities, and they start settling the land of Israel in an agriculture communities. Parallel to what he was doing, so there's this Aliyah. Mm -hmm. So he's looking for a piece of land. He, he being uh, Herzl. Um, Herzl, and he's a diplomat. Mm -hmm. So he's have friends, he can talk with uh, the British. The British are willing to help if they can. They just don't, they want to give, but they don't have Palestine to give him. Right. It's so, still under the Ottomans. Exactly. So they are trying to offer him Cyprus, uh, uh, El Arish, with Jim the Gaza Strip now, uh, and then came the big offer to go to Uganda. They say, we found to you a place, Dr. Herzl, that's just going to be perfect for you and your people in Uganda. And in the beginning, he's against it. But lo and behold, 1903, uh, the Kishinev pogrom that shook the Jewish world again. And a few days, uh, government thing. And he came to the Zionist Congress, and he offered this for the Jewish Congress. He says, uh, we'll do it as a shelter for night. Not permanent, but as a shelter for night. The Jewish Congress is being divided by half almost, supporter against, and he's shocked. Uh, Theodor Herzl, because the delegate from Kishinev refusing for the offer. Mm -hmm. They say, we will go to no other country but mm -hmm. Palestine. Mm -hmm. And he's totally shocked. Mm -hmm. But um, the Jewish, uh, they send a comedian, they decide to take it in a few years as a possibility, and they keep looking for what's happened. And then happened First World War. And when the British take over Palestine, in but it's not Palestine at that time. Uh, I mean, it's called Palestine. Yes. There's no border nation or whatever. It's Ottoman. It's, yeah, it's the Ottoman, Ottoman Empire. Empire. It's uh, settled by various uh, it's Arab peoples, except in the Israel region, which is Jews and Christians in Jerusalem, and Jews and Arabs in the other regions, and and it's part of, you know, it's 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 incorporated in in various Arab kingdoms and such. Mm -hmm. There's not. There's no border system like we see today with Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, etc. No. It's all just one big um, Ottoman Empire over there. Correct. Okay. And the Ottoman Empire so, starts collapsing. So when it collapses and the and the the British take over that section of the Middle East, now the Balfour Declaration. The British give the Balfour Declaration that say that they see uh, in favor a building of a Jewish. Uh, homeland for the Jews in their ancient land of Israel, and the Jews can come with consideration of not hurting other minorities that are there. Mm -hmm. And the open door for the first time is... This is 1917. The British government, for the first time since 135 and 70 AD, for the first time the Jews are told, you can come and settle if you want to, you just can't impede or, or disrupt the other minority peoples in the region. And that's the Balfour Declaration. That's a turning point, the national home for the Jewish people. Right. Okay. Okay. And then there's the Versailles Conference at the end of the war, you know, the Treaty of Versailles um, in 1919. Uh, this, is seem, this seems critical because the Arabs have a, have a delegation have a delegate there, Emir Faisal, Faisal, the son of the Hashemite Sharif of Mecca, and he is representing the Arab world, and this Arab delegate representing those Arab powers agrees to cooperate with Chaim Wiseman, representing the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. He agrees to cooperate, uh, acknowledging the Jewish right to a place in Palestine. Mm 
So at the Versailles Agreement, following the uh, Balfour Declaration, it seems like it's not just the British imposing something on the Arabs or allowing the Jews, but it seems like they've got everybody at the table and there's going to be peace. Seems like this is... <laughs> the Arabs are at the table talking and there's no hostilities. No, these men who were the representative hoped or promised by the British that he gonna get, uh, he gonna be a king of this area. Mm -hmm. And he said to Hein Weizmann, uh, we want them to come. Mm -hmm. They'll bring the expert, they're gonna bring, bring the scientists, they're gonna make the desert bloom again. And so the Arab uh, delegate Faisal said through his interpreter, Lawrence of Arabia, that it was their hope that the Zionist would bring investment and expertise that would transform Palestine. And he says, now so arid and so much of a desert, it will become a garden. It will blossom like the rose. This is the Arab delegate yep. with expectation and hope of what the Jews are going to bring. He hoped that the, Jew, the Jews and Arabs would, quote, work together, not just in Israel, but in the adjoining Arab lands to make them, quote, flourish again. Yeah. And then he put a little signature on, deal on the end and he said, this is all dependent if I'm going to get my own country too. If not, I'm not obligated to anything I said. He said, if I'm getting my gun and the British have basically promised him Syria and by the end of the Versailles uh, Treaty, Syria went to the Syria and Lebanon, went to the French. French yeah. So he was out of the immediate, he wasn't governor anymore of this area. <laughs> so the geopolitical mess. They sent him to Iraq instead. Oh, man. And that must have made him happy, right? Yeah. Okay, so then looking at the bigger picture again, the next big inflection point is the Holocaust yeah. and, and the, the wholesale extermination of six million Jews and... and um, and just what that did to the Jewish people, how that, how that uh, galvanized them. And it seems like looking at the Zionists, those who wanted to settle in Israel, in Palestine, the numbers in, in Germany, it was like th only 3% were Zionist members. Uh, the Jewish people really wanted assimilation by and large. They didn't want to be different. They didn't want to go to some backwater country and drain the swamps. They didn't want their children to drop out of college and spend time in Zionist camps learning to milk cows or do plumbing or learn a trade. They wanted, they wanted musicians and artists and professors and scientists. And, and here the Zionist movement was saying, get out of Europe. Get out of this whole advanced culture because it's ultimately going to turn on you. And so there was a lot of hostility on, from, from Jews against Jews, from assimilated Jews against Zionist Jews. But after the war, after, after the war, everything changed. And it was before the war that your grandparents went. So the, the stirring was happening. The Aliyah was continuing, but it was still a very small minority. After the war everything started to change. Yes, sir. Correct. Um, if I can say just <clears throat> before the <clears throat> before Hitler came to power, there were about 350,000 Jews in the land of Israel, living with the Arab, Arab some of them in, in mixed city, as Haifa and Akko and Jerusalem. And when Hitler came to power, just to understand the shock of those who kind of didn't think the Zionist movement is what needs to be done. When he passed a, a law that all Jewish people lose, lost their job, eight Nobel Prize winners lost their job that night, mm. heading by um, Albert Einstein. Mm. Everybody. They, 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 things have changed in Germany so fast <clears throat> that from 1933 to 1939, the breaking of the war, a big wave of immigrants, 70,000 uh, probably German Jews left, and Israel almost doubled to 650 when people came from all over Europe when they realized there was the feeling of what is coming mm -hmm. with a, when Hitler came to power, mm -hmm. before the war began.
So there was another Aliyah burst. The fifth Aliyah, the mm. biggest one, mm. a quarter of a million people before the war broke, and there was no more mm. a possibility to leave mm. out. You know, um, I believe it's Emmanuel Savan uh, of the Hebrew Institute that explains that for 700 years, the Arabs had settled uh, the region of Palestine, but mostly on the hill countries overlooking the coasts because their their primary purpose was to block Christian crusaders from getting in. And so they were predominantly hill country people mm -hmm. who were there as kind of with the, with the sacred right, they viewed the sacred right of protecting the holy sites mm -hmm. from crusaders. It doesn't really mean that that the fertile what are now the fertile regions of Israel were heavily populated by Arabs. Oftentimes they were not. They were next to abandoned. Um, and so he, he explains that uh, only about 2,000 families, he says here, he says, whatever land the Jewish people acquired was through land purchases that was agreed to completely voluntary, uh, voluntarily by the local owners, and the number was very limited, only about 2,000 families of peasants uh, were involved. He says the development of the area along the shore by the Jews attracted manpower, especially from the east bank of Jordan, but also from Syria and Lebanon. Mm -hmm. So he starts talking about how the the Jews moving in to the the area along the shore. Uh, he says that the workload. And the activity and the development that started occurring as these large numbers of Jews came in, it actually attracted kind of migrant workers out of Syria and the West Bank and East Bank of Jordan, and they started pouring in. But he said they did not have deep, long-lasting roots. They were often coming from Arab countries that had terrible economies, and they're coming in as Israel starts creating jobs and work. And much of what we call the Palestinian population now, they're not people whose ancestors have been there for hundreds or thousands of years. They're people who, many of them, they came as migrant workers mm -hmm. to be part of the Israeli development, of the Jewish development that happened in the Zionist wave. So in a kind of twist of irony, Zionism is what attracted many of the Palestinians that are now so oppositional. Zionism is what brought them to the land, Correct. brought them out of Syria and the surrounding areas into the land. Certainly there are old Arab families, but they were predominantly focused in the hill country mm -hmm. because their purpose was to watch and protect against um, sea seafaring crusaders mm -hmm. who would be coming against mm -hmm. the holy sites. So this is interesting. He says, people unfamiliar with the Middle East think that Israel is the only novelty on the political map. And of this, and this, of course, is a grave error. Most Middle East states are very new, and almost all of them are born on the debris of the Ottoman Empire in World War I. So one of the things that I think that a lot of people don't get, like Savan is saying here, is that you know, Jordan and Lebanon and Syria and these countries did not exist prior to the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. And what was it that uh, Churchill, what was his famous statement? Because he was, he was uh, representing the British government in that region for a season. What was his statement about Jordan? Uh, he <laughs> says, I created Jordan one Sunday afternoon with a stroke of a, of a pen over a cup of tea. <laughs> so, yeah, people see Israel like it's this transplant that's been imposed on the region everybody else has been there for centuries and then all of a sudden we arbitrarily imposed israel right. as this thing that everybody's you know their ancestral homelands have been invaded by something arbitrary right. when in fact all of it was arbitrarily carved up and given to to people that were indigenous to the area yes including the jews who were yes. indigenous to to actually multiple of those countries, not just Israel Yes. at the time. Yes. So, okay, let's start looking at... And I can just add, yes. and they lived together, worked together, shared things together until something else, until hatred started uh, seeping in uh, through political agendas, 
until then, you see them. A key figure in the turn from from a a more peaceful coexistence to the hostile environment that we're in today, a key pivot seems to occur in the 40s uh, around the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. And ha- how do you say his name? Haj Amin al-Husseini? Haj Amin al-Husseini. He is the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. So he is the, the presiding Arab uh, politician or governor representing the Muslim population, the Arab Muslim population. He is a pivotal figure. Correct. And what's interesting about him is, is uh, he was a rabble rouser. <laughs> At various points in his career, you know, he, he, had, he achieved his status as the Mufti of Jerusalem through a pretty bitter rivalry. Uh, it didn't just fall, he didn't uh, inherit it as if it were falling in his lap. There was some, there was some pretty ugly tensions there. But um, he was an anti-Semite. He was a rabid anti-Semite. And he is most notorious for his collaboration with Adolf Hitler. So the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, he can be seen as his actions and framework start the conflict that erupted this last Saturday. He sows, he paints the picture, he gives the framework of hostility, and he calls the conflict a holy war. The Arabs were rivaling with each other, the Ottomans with the British. There was factions and land disputes and border disputes among all of these people for all of their history. But now, something that was moving forward somewhat peacefully, he frames as a holy war. Even though Jerusalem, it does have holy sites to Islam, but it's not on a par with Mecca or some of the other sites. I believe it's mentioned uh, only two times in the Quran. It's not a, it's not, it wasn't historically seen as, as critical as some of these others. He's the one, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, who starts to really entrench the anti-Zionism but it really was just an expression of anti-Semitism. And that's why he found such an ally in Adolf Hitler. Yeah. In the 20s, in the early 20s, he led the, one, the first riots that killed Jews. Mm. The British were very unhappy, and actually they sentenced him to 10 years in prison. Mm. He ran away, came back, they, and they hope they're going to they're gonna just treat him nice, and then he's going to become nice. The boys they didn't see that he was the one who turned it from a diplomatic uh, negotiation that you want to settle land. He said, it's not going to work. Yeah. I have to turn it to a jihad. Holy war. Holy war. That's he the one who said, we're going to have to turn it to a jihad. In the, in the 40s, in 41, um, he established Haj Amin al-Husseini, Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, this pivotal figure who created the environment we're in today, he was famous for establishing a Muslim SS division in Yugoslavia. Yeah. So his level of collaboration with Nazism could not be overstated. Um, he called Adolf Eichmann, quote, the greatest friend of the Arabs. And on November 28, 1941, he met with Hitler and learned that he had decided to find a final solution to the Jewish people in stages, step after step, without pause. The Grand Mufti originally thought that Hitler was wanting to displace the Jews. He's wanting to exile them out of Europe. And so he wanted to ensure, don't send them to Palestine. But then when he, when he discovered that Hitler had the final solution of the gas chambers, he was greatly relieved. He gave a speech uh, during his stay in Germany, the Grand Mufti gave a speech on Radio Berlin, and we st- they still have the recording to this day. And in his speech, he makes this statement, quote, Kill the Jews wherever you find them. This finds grace in the eyes of God, history, and religion. He is also quoted as saying in this broadcast, For us Muslims, it is unworthy to utter the word Islam in the same breath with Judaism since Islam stands high over its perfidious adversary. So this guy was, uh, he's the one who gives the narrative that is still pulsating in these West Bank and 
um, Gaza communities. This this narrative of victimhood, this narrative of, of, of holy war, which is what sanctions suicide missions and all this other craziness. He's the one who, who gets it started. He's the one. He says, arise. This is still him. This is Husseini. Arise, O sons of Arabia. Fight for your sacred rights. Slaughter Jews wherever you find them. Their spilled blood pleases Allah, our history and religion. That will save our honor. Not a good guy. Not at all. So. And it took times. You see, this, it took time to, and we're going to talk about maybe on the war of independent or the, between the, after the declaration, you see how it, it, they had to do something because people didn't have this hostility built inside them. They live in good neighborhood with the Jews and the Arabs. Okay. So looking at the Israeli War of Independence, what was the antecedent for that through the United Nations? What, was, what allowed Israel? Did, did, the, did the Jews just say, okay, it's time to fight to the bloody end until we steal this land, and then it'll be ours. Is that how this came about? What was the antecedent for the 1948 uh, birth of Israel? We say the British took Israel in 1917. 30 years later, in, uh, 30 years later in 47 now, they, um, they have, there's problems there now. Bad problems. There's conflict between Jews and Arabs, and the uh, the man that tried to be the police, and it's very bad. And they said it's too much, and the United Nations sent a delegation to offer, if there is a possibility, to make a partition of the of the land, give a Jewish state and an Arab state, Palestinian, if they want to say, living in coexistence one next to another. The committee come and look and uh, come back and recommend her doing it. And in uh, Flushing Meadow, New York, in, in November 29, the vote, and two-thirds of the United Nations vote for this suggestion to, 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 to put the country, two countries, two-state two solution. Mm -hmm. Okay, here it is, two-state solution. On this piece of land, they draw the map that leave all the big Arab popular area is on the mountains, and all on the hills of Judea and everything to the Arabs, and leave other places. It looked pretty strange when David Ben-Gurion heard about it and saw it. They say to him, it is a nightmare. He said, I'll take a few more nightmares like this or something like this. Yeah. And the Jews are rejoicing when the decision happened. Two-thirds voted mm -hmm. for them and rejoicing, dancing everywhere. Okay, so this land that is controlled by the Ottoman Empire for centuries then is taken over by the British Empire. And they generally submit to the British Empire. And then the British Empire says, it's time, you have too much conflict, it's time to create a two-state solution. But the British don't do this unilaterally. They submit to the United Nations. And the United Nations agrees that the fair thing to do with these two populations is to split this land into two states, a Jewish state and an Arab state. And this is done in 47, correct? Correct. And, and so this was not the Jews coming up with the idea uh, and fighting to the bloody end until they stole the homeland. This was them submitting first to the British and then to the United Nations in this proposal. And it was a, a little bit haphazard. It was a little bit crazy, but it wasn't any more crazy or haphazard than the, than the pin marks uh, uh, on maps that created Jordan and Syria and Lebanon and all of these other countries. So those who were the powers that be created these, these distinctions. And what happens then is the Jews, the Jewish people, accept the United Nations mandate and they didn't love it, but they accepted it. And they said, this is good enough. We'll accept this, like you just quoted Ben-Gurion. But the Arabs said flatly, no, we will not accept this. And, and so it's not that right then and there, the, the Arabs put themselves at odds with what 
the world, what the powers of the world, the nations of the world had agreed upon. And the, and the Arabs say, we're not going to abide by this rule of law. And, and so from that point on, the Arabs start a war with Israel. And it's a war, it's a conventional war, but it's also a war of terror. And Israel prevails in that war. That is the 1948 War of Independence. These Palestinians incite the affections and the support of the five Arab nations surrounding Israel, and they bring in unparalleled firepower and manpower that was overwhelmingly greater than the Jews. And, and, and yet the Jews, remarkably, we would say providentially, win the war and, and establish the Jewish state in 1948. Correct. But this created the crisis that we're in today. How did it create it? Well, at that time, there was something that went forth called the Arab call. <laughs> Those Arab nations who were going to war against this small band of Jews who had just been given the right of self-determination by the United Nations. Those Arab nations told the Arabs in, 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 in Israel, in, in the Palestinian region, mm -hmm. those Arabs said, come out, leave your homes, exit and come out here and, and come on the borders with us. And then when we've wiped the Jews off the map, when we've literally driven them into the sea, to quote them, you will go back and inhabit uh, your land and their land is alike. So they weren't wanting to give the Jews what the United Nations had given them. They were in revolt. They were in rebellion against all of it. And, and they told their own people, come out, and then when we've beat the Jews, you can go back. And that created the West Bank and Gaza uh, refugee camps that were thousands, hundreds of thousands of Arabs now are on the borders of Arab countries. It, they're the same ethnicity of their host countries. They're the same religion. They're the same culture. But those host countries would never allow those refugees to assimilate. Why would they not let them assimilate? Because they believed in a sinister lie, a total fiction, that Israel was temporary. So the Jews, the, the Arab nations did not want those those uh, refugees to assimilate into their own among their own people in these surrounding Arab countries, all refugee crises in the history of the world have been resolved ultimately. Sometimes it takes a decade or more, but they're, they've all been resolved. Only in Israel has it never been resolved because the Arab nations that called those refugees out would never let those refugees assimilate among their own culture, their own religion, their own ethnic people in those host Arab nations. Why? Because they all held to this cynical fiction that Israel was a temporary condition and that they were going to eventually wipe it off the map and send the Arabs back into what they called Palestine, which had become Israel. Yeah. Interestingly enough, I would go further and say that... The, the immigration crisis was going both ways. Mm -hmm. As the Arabs became hostile against the existence of Israel, there were hundreds of thousands of Jews in Iran, in Iraq, in Lebanon, in Syria, and Jordan. And all of those Jews, whether by force or through social pressure, they were driven out of those host Arab nations by the Arabs, and Israel had to figure out how to absorb those people of the same ethnicity, of the same culture, of the same faith into this new land of Israel. And they did something never before seen. They, they created houses and neighborhoods and development on an unprecedented scale. It shocked the world how they were able to absorb, absorb over uh, 650,000 Jews over that decade. But the Arab nations who had called their own people out of Israel would not let them reabsorb into the host nations they were called mm -hmm. into. Thus, we have these camps where people cannot find life, they cannot find um, economy, they cannot find any rhythm of a, of a hopeful existence. They're just waiting, and their only hope 
is that they can one day erase Israel from the map. Mm -hmm. And that was the fiction that had been told them throughout all these years. Third generation now of those refugees, this tragic uh, uh, refugees. And um, if I can tell you from a personal, uh, I, knew, I know a man in uh, the kibbutz I grew up who was responsible on security. And he said that one, I heard the many, many years, a story that in 48, he saw, he woke up early in the morning and he saw a, a line of people going with their belonging from that little village across the Jordan that was in neighborhood with the kibbutz and always been in good standing, living. Him being a refugee expelled from Germany when the Nazis came, went to them and pleaded with them don't leave. So in your Jewish kibbutz, the, the man in charge of security mm -hmm. pleaded with the Arabs who had been told by those nations attacking the Jews mm -hmm. to come out of Israel. He pleaded with them to stay. Mm -hmm. But they followed his, his instruction in this famous Arab call to abandon Israel while Israel was being bombarded on every side by these five Arab nations, hmm? and they never came back. No, they went across and went to Jordan and stayed there. And now, what about the Arabs who didn't answer this call? They live in Israel. There is... Um, what percentage of Israel right now is Arab? <clears throat> Jewish Arabs, which mean have a Jewish ID and everything, are over 20%, probably 20, uh, probably... 20.1, 22.3. In the election a few years ago, their party to the parliament, their parties, if they made all the Arabs together, they were the third largest party Political in Israel. Party Political in party in Israel. Yeah, they were the third largest. If you have a voice, they're the third largest voice in the country. Okay, so <clears throat> this, is, this is the problem with liberals and pundits today who call Israel an apartheid nation. Mm -hmm. that, that's a little bit problematic when 20% of your population is Arab and they're the third largest political force in, in the Knesset. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit, a uh, little bit contradictory. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is because if you go to Israel as all of us have been there and you go to hotels and restaurants, in uh, constructions and anywhere else, you, will you won't be able to recognize if you are served by an Arab or by a Jew, unless they talk and you hear a little bit of the different accent. But there's a lot of coexistence. Oh, yeah. My dad went to a major surgery. The man operated him. He's an Arab. They are in everywhere, there's no, even right now, I can assure you, they're working, those Arabs are, are, um, are taking care of wounded and, and dead people with no, it's always been like this in the country. I've been there. We've, we've, <clears throat> we've gone into their villages right there <clears throat> in Israel, and we've eaten delicious food. <laughs> and the Arabs are coexisting with Israel. Why did Israel not let the refugees who left come back? Well, that's, uh, that's going to be uh, turning the demographic uh, Israel in. It's not people that uh, uh, they left, either escaped or left, but to try to bring them back, it's going to be as uh, reasonable as bringing the Jews back to Iran and uh, Egypt okay. and Syria. So you're saying that... <clears throat> As many Jews were leaving Arab countries, more, many 850, more. probably 850,000. 850,000 Jews were, have, were being forced out of Arab countries Correct. that Israel had to absorb. Mm -hmm. And those who left, those Arabs who left Israel voluntarily, Israel said, you're not coming back because that was your choice. Stick with it. And that, and the problem is, is that the Jews coming out of the Arab countries, Israel absorbed as a refugee crisis that they handled. But the Arabs who asked their own people to leave Israel during the 48 conflict would never let them assimilate into their cultural countries and nations. 
surrounding. Yeah, with the biggest uh, budget by the UN for, I think, a billion dollar a year to sustain that problem going. And um, it's a very, and it's a very sad story. Explain that. What, do you, what You're saying that the United Nations funds these uh, support they the, supports these these camps so that they continue. Yeah. So, they, so so these Arab host nations are getting money for it, or are the camps uh, are getting it directly? I think it's about a billion dollar a year that the budget of the UN that's come from the United States and European country mm. to help to help with the third generation mm. of refugees who live in their own countries. Mm. Well, Dan, I think that the only solution is just to give the Arabs' democracy. You know, if, if we could just get the Palestinians to vote, it would all be solved, right? Well, it's not how it's gone so far. <laughs> I think a lot of people thought that way until it got to the point where they actually tried it. And was that 07, I think, when they, they actually did have a vote? And the Western world was shocked that they voted for Hamas hmm. to lead the Palestinian uh, contingent. Uh, people couldn't understand that. You know, they think in terms of there must just be some bad actors yeah. amongst these um, downtrodden people that if they we, if we just gave them enough liberty and let let them have a majority, let the majority give their vote, yeah. then they're going to they're going to choose a, a system more similar to the United States or to Israel for that matter. Mm. Um, but they didn't, <laughs> and I think it goes to show uh, how much democracy to function properly is dependent upon uh, factors that come from social context, from mm. religious contexts, mm. and, and so forth. The fabric of, of the Western world where democracy has flourished uh, has been primarily a Judeo-Christian ethic mm. behind it all, where there's a, there's a common understanding in the society of right and wrong and standards of justice and all mm. kinds of things. And when that's not present in a people, just saying that you know, the majority's decision will rule. It doesn't work well when the majority uh, makes a bad choice. Mobocracy. Yeah. It would almost, if you, if you look at Hamas and, and you say their founding is predicated on the, on the oath to exterminate Jews and wipe Israel off the map, it would be like the United States having free elections and electing the Ku Klux Klan um, as the ruling party mm -hmm. of this nation. So it just shows that the, the cultural and social indoctrination that is deep-seated, religious, cultural, and social indoctrination, it, it's the problem. And it's not going to be solved through some technical or practical solution. It's really pretty scary how hopeless it starts to look. It, there's not really going to be... A, um, a political answer to this, I'm afraid, that doesn't involve some measure of brutality. In fact, historically, if you look at the Arab nations who have enjoyed some measure of, of stability, whether Egypt in the past or Jordan or um, various uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, the United Arab Emirates, these Arab, uh, Arab nations, they are not democracies. They are autocracies. And I think that we, we think democracy is some inherent good. Democracy mm -hmm. is only going to reveal the character and values of its population. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not, there's nothing inherently good about it. It's perhaps a useful tool if you have this well-educated moral population, to quote John Adams. But in fact, Arab populations have typically found greater stability under autocracies than under democracies. Uh, it's just not a rubric that's going to save the world mm -hmm. as much as we think it is. It shows that the, the real determining factor is something completely different. So, what's the answer? I grew up in Israel as a non-believing Jew. It's an interesting term, but we always hope that polity is going to bring the answer when they signed the Oslo Peace Accord, and then now they signed the Abraham Accord, and you feel like there are countries who, who, who see that it might be good to have peace, it's always driven by uh, political money and other things. But there are people in both sides 
who just don't want to fight and to die. But um, I couldn't find it coming politically. They're going to be peace. You were part of the IDF. Correct. Yeah. You were part of an elite commando unit and, and participated in the campaign in Lebanon, correct? Correct. And you don't believe that there's going to be any abiding solution, political solution. What's the answer? A peace. A peace uh, process between people. Mm. The peace is going to be between people mm. who, can, uh, who can leave all the political and uh, things that uh, all, all the other... What we're basically saying is that it's not a political problem. It's not going to be a political solution. It's a social problem. It's a human problem. Mm-hmm. So it's going to have to be a human solution. There's going to have to be a transformation of human hearts. Correct. Okay. That's, that's, that's what I think we learn over the years. And I'm going to dinner today with two Egyptian, four Lebanese, and uh, three Israelis. And uh, I, I really think... And yet there's complete peace at that table. Correct. And, so, well, and at least one of them is a Muslim yes. from Lebanon. And some of them have been kids when we were there trying to get political solution in the war. And um, um, the best we can ask is for a cessation of war. Yeah. You know, just in wrapping up, it seems like a lot of Israelis find it difficult to distinguish from the anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, because the roots of the current conflict started with an ally of Adolf Hitler who formed an SS unit and declared the death of all Jews. And the, the current climate in the United Nations or in liberal media or in various circles uh, that is promoting this thing called the BDS uh, movement, boycott, what is it, what does it stand for? Divestment. Boycott, divestment, and sanctions. They, they, they view Israel as this apartheid nation that we've got to boycott, divest uh, equity from, and sanction. And it's a popular movement. It's put forth by Roger Walter, Walters of the Pink Floyd Band and, and other uh, icons of pop culture or media. And, and yet, Many Israelis feel that it's just more anti-Semitism lurking behind the palatability of uh, anti-Zionism or the Palestinian conflict, but it's really a hatred of the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. And you see on a, today, on a day like today, when those in Gaza, the Palestinians in Gaza declared uh, Friday um, a day of revolt and all over the world, protests of unspeakable hatred against the Jews erupted. This is not a political conflict. This is an animosity that has lived in, in all cultures against the Jews from Abraham until now. And it's, it's some hatred toward the people of God. And I'm not saying the Jews are walking in, in the truth of the scripture, I'm not saying that they are walking as, as faithful believers of the Lord, of their God, as, as an entire unit. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying they are hated because they have an identity, because they are a people, and because they are different. And, and this hatred, this hatred is, is a spiritual dynamic. And as Christians, we need to pray against it and bind it, not as a political problem, but as a spiritual spiritual problem we need to wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers and just in wrapping up that's what that's what i want to encourage us to do let's pray for israel let's pray for the israel of god people of faith all over the place in arab nations in the united states in europe and israel everywhere and let's pray for the people of israel who who are really suffering from the political outworkings of spiritual forces 
that hate God and that hate God's people. And let's, let's wage war on our knees. And let's make, let's believe in the small human connections that can start to spread a peace that is given not as the world gives. Yeah. A peace not of this world, a kingdom not of this world. Yeah. And, and that ultimately is going to be the only thing, the only hope of turning the tide and, and bringing, bringing peace and unity for a very troubled, complicated region and story right. in the world's history. Do you want to say anything in closing? We are all feeling it now. There's no happy war in either side. There's so much grief and pain. But um, I, I said that that's actually the history of the Jews. Every time you saw a wave of up of Aliyah was after a very difficult time. And the worst of which we talk today were the ashes of the Holocaust. And, um, and nobody wished for that, wished for anything else, but um, we think that the contraction that's come hopefully gonna bring us closer to one another. Mm. And Israel now experienced a u unity between people that have been long gone in the sense of uh, when there's a war, everybody's a brother. Mm. There's no political party, and somebody told me on the phone, I just, this morning I read that in the um, uh, mixed city as Haifa and others, Jews and Arabs are patrolling together mm. to prevent violence of mm. both sides. Mm. Don't That's say it. there's no cooperation. There's just enough of the radical the thing that came from the Khadimi. ideology of hate exactly and you can quote probably the last thing of hamas mm -hmm. when they said it became very obvious that you it's a two kind of perspective yeah yeah the hamas representative made the chilling statement we love death more than you love life mm -hmm. these are not people who have a future that are trying to find it these are people who have a vendetta and an ideology of hate, and they're trying to show it. They're trying to, to hurt those who they view as the, yeah. the source of their own pain. And I hope it's going to be prevented for both sides. Amen. There's innocent people everywhere that you grieve and you want, but I think we have something we can do by creating, a, building this ark. Mm -hmm. As an Israeli friend told me yesterday, he said to me on the phone, he said, I'm devastated. I don't know what to do with myself, he said. I'm more convinced than ever that we need to have communities like you all over the world, he said, because every time I come to visit, my spirit has been lifted up. Amen. So. Well, enjoy that dinner with those from Egypt and Lebanon, with Muslims and Christians and Jews. And uh, it's a small example. It's a small precedent and hope of what God has planned for his people. Thank you all for tuning in. Uh, we pray that you would join with us in standing with and praying for the Jewish people in Israel and God's people everywhere. God bless you. You'll see us next time. <laughs>